Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn actually to two passages, one, the one we've been looking at in Acts 2.42, and then also 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 12 to 27, which I may get through half of that this morning. But we have been looking at, if you are here today, uh, we have been looking at Christian fellowship, that uh, once we become believers, uh, God brings a tremendous and a new change, a complete change into our life. We are, are, are the way we think changes, our actions, actions and behavior changes, the whole direction of our life changes, and then God brings us out of the world into the church. And then in the church, we should be actually found together quite often because now we have a new family. So, and in many respects, our church family becomes closer and more intimate than even our blood family. And the real indication that new divine life has come into our life is that we want to draw together with God's people. And the first thing we want when we draw together is the apostles' teaching. And the second thing that we want is Christian fellowship. By way of review, the definition of Christian fellowship I included were fellowship is a relationship, it is a partnership, it's a community of sharers. The basis of Christian fellowship was that of there has to be new life there. You have to be born again into God's family and quickened by the Holy Spirit and be alive to the things of God. There's an agreement that we all are learning and growing in in the apostle, in the word of God, in the apostle's teaching. That Christian fellowship is conditioned by walking in the light. And that means confessing and repenting of our sin how we maintain it, and then living with a new worldview, a new goal for life. The privileges of Christian fellowship is that we get a chance to fellowship with the Father and the Son, which we did not have before conversion. And then we get a chance to fellowship with one another, all the passages that I've covered already. Spiritual fellowship, in other words, is not a luxury, but a necessity vital to our spiritual growth and health. Just as these first Christians in the book of Acts fellowship with one another also had obstacles. We have obstacles. Americans in particular have obstacles. We tend to be self-sufficient and materialistic. We tend to be abnormally individualistic. We tend to have and protect our privacy where the quality of Christian relationships are sacrificed on the altar of our peace and quiet. So we as Christians should be aware that these cultural influences and other ones reduce our commitment to one another and to the church family. The Holy Spirit of God's intention when he saves people and brings them into the church is to teach Christians by the word of God that the called-out church is to be different than the cold and materialistic and withdrawn society that we were rescued from. When we were brought into Christ's church, 
we were brought there and to a particular design that the Christians were designed to be in constant fellowship with other believers and to be strengthened by quality Christian relationships within the local church. So as members of Christ's church, we are designed to live the Christian life in cooperation with one another, dependently, not individualistically or independently. And of course, the purpose of Christian fellowship was to encourage one another, to share our experiences, as the scripture tells us, be caring and being devoted to honoring, praying, sharing, rejoicing, and weeping with one another, all in scripture. And then we are to enlighten the weaker brother, and then to exhort the backslider, to turn them back to the Lord, if we can, to offer our fellowship to them, may remind them of a happier time, happier days, maybe in the beginning of their Christian walk, and that we could woo them to come back to the Lord. And then, of course, to to strengthen one another. Even if we're doing well spiritually, we owe it to others to give fellowship to them. And in the process, we get blessed too. That's one thing about fellowship. You fellowship with one another, you get blessed. Why would I want to miss that blessing? I don't. Matter of fact, I can't get blessed apart from you in that personal fellowship way because that's how God designed it. So in other words, you can't stay away. You can't be absent from this. To be absent too long voluntarily may show that you're not redeemed at all. You're not a Christian at all. You don't want any of this. I didn't sign up for that. And one of the things I think that Christians maybe grapple with about not signing up for, you sign up when you become a Christian for work. For work. God's given us spiritual gifts so we can work. We're created in Christ to be workmen. Right? And work work for the day, the night is coming where no one could work. So that means that we have a short period of time on this earth to work for the Lord. Let's give it all. Labor Day is this weekend. People don't realize that if you have off on Saturday... If you have off on Saturday on your job, right, and if you have off any day of the week on your job, it's because of the labor movement in the United States. It's when people came, immigrants came to the country, they worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, with no rest, no vacation, low pay, and horrible conditions on the job. That's how the labor movement came into existence. In fact, we celebrate this weekend because of work. Labor movements brought better conditions to people in the United States. And then, of course, Canada caught on and other parts of the world have a labor day because labor is important. If you don't have working people in your society, it doesn't work and you can't have a better life. So we come into the church, and in fact, some of the stories that I heard, my mother's father was a coal miner. My father's father was a coal miner. Actually, 
my father's father died of black lung. Actually, my, both my, my uh, grandparents died of black lung because they worked in the mines with no masks, with no safety conditions, and they breathed in that coal dust until their lungs became stone and they could no longer breathe. My father would tell me that his father would actually, in the wintertime, stick his head out the window at night so he can breathe. And that if somebody died in the mines, they would take the body and throw it on the porch of the person, uh, of the family, of the wife, cold and callous. And, And so, in other words, we are celebrating a freedom and a job security type of environment because of what they dealt with back then. They had to work and sacrifice so we can have a better life. I, I, was, I think in my mind, I don't know if I could have gone through what my grandfather went through. But at the same time, we have to remember this. We could not be Christians unless Christ did the work on the cross. Unless he accomplished what we could have never accomplished, we could have never known what it meant to have a relationship with the God who created the heaven and the earth. And to know that we have a future because of that. He wants to bless us. He wants to pour his grace upon us. And he wants to be merciful to us every single day. And it's all because of the work of Christ. So that brings me to my passage of Scripture. The passage I mentioned in Acts is now, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 12 is really about working. It's about the body working properly together to accomplish the goals that God wants. So this morning I want you to realize that there are three, there's three Scriptural, this is not working. There's three scriptural foundations that we find for Christian fellowship. To glean that, we have to turn to our Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In other words, you cannot have Christian fellowship unless you're working with each other. It's part of God's program. It's part of what we do. Now, I didn't mention them on the screen. I have it. So the scripture, uh, the first one is this, is that the scriptures declare there is only one body of Christ, even though there are many members in the body. So this is the first foundational truth for Christian fellowship, that you really are called in the church to work together, to do God's work. But we have to understand some things. First, there's only one body. It's not about individuals. It's about the whole body. And so Paul, in this part of the Word of God, goes to great lengths to explain to the Corinthians of this design that God has given to his church. And so it's in the Word of God for us today. And the first thing that we see under this first heading is that the church is one organic whole. If you look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, 2, 3, 
verse 12 through 13. It says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, if you notice, the term one used throughout these two verses point to the fact that the body is an organic whole, that the Scripture is using the human body as an analogy to compare it to the church body. Just as there is unity in the midst of diversity that pervades the physical body, it also characterizes the spiritual body. Francis Schaeffer, in his book written on true spirituality, which is called, the chapter is called Substantial Healing in the Church, he said that this, he says, the basic basic thing in the church is not organizational unity, even though that's where we spend most of our time, though it has its place. He said the human body is directed by the head. The hands are not in direct relationship with each other. The reason they cooperate is that each of the hands, each of the joints, each of the fingers is under the control of a single control point, and that is the head. Block the body from the head, and the body is spastic. Its fingers, for example, could never find each other, and uniformity of action would come to an end. It's exactly the same with the Church of Jesus Christ. The real unity is not basically organizational unity. The real unity is not of one part with the other parts, but a unity in which each part is under the control of the head and therefore functions together under that head. The unity of the church is basically the unity of the head controlling each of the parts. If, as an individual, or if groups of Christians are not under the leadership of the head, the church of Jesus Christ will be functioning like hands that cannot find each other, and the whole thing will be broken and spastic and actually accomplish nothing. So if Christians in any group fail to be under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, under the headship of Christ, that group will proportionately be a spastic group and accomplish nothing because nobody knows what the other person is doing. But in the church of Christ, it's completely different. It's a unity, a unity in which there are many parts to it, but in that unity, we're all working together under the head. So, Now, that means also, if you look in chapter 12, verse number 14, it says, For the body is not one member, but many. So each each member of the body has a part of its own. This means that each part has a responsibility that can be handled better by itself than by any other. Yet it remains a unit. Now, if you notice... 
the couplets in our passage, the foot and the hand, the ear and the eye, the head and the feet, the weak members and the strong members are all included in this passage. And Paul really wants to drive home to us an analogy so we can fix it in our mind that, wow, the church works just like my body. It works just like my body. So he addresses a few problems in the church, and one of the problems that the church at Corinth was having and we have today is the church had an inferiority complex. All right, And we'll see what that is. And if you notice, in verse number 15, it says this, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. So that's what we have. We have two things going on here. We have the hand and we have the foot. Now, the foot thought it could not be part of the body because it was not a hand. Of course, the hand is very visible. They can, the hand can perform many abilities like writing poems and songs and building things. Feet generally cannot do these things. The foot is generally unappealing. Usually it's covered. We have it in a sandal or a shoe. And therefore it's not very visible. See, feet are only good for odor eaters. So it, it concludes, I'm not as visible and gifted as a hand, so I'm not needed. I'm not part of the body. See, people actually think this in their mind, all right? See, they, they don't come to church to work. They come to church to sit there and get what they want and leave, and then you never see them again. That's not what's supposed to happen, all right? That's not what's supposed to happen, all right? And so they go by the default, and they think, well, you know, I'm not in it to work. I'm just in it to get what I can. So the principle under this one would be this, that no member can accomplish its own removal from the human body by complaining or depreciating its own importance. Therefore, everyone has a responsibility to accomplish something toward the growth of the body, no matter how inconspicuous, inconspicuous their gift may be. So here is a Christian whose gifts are less conspicuous because he or she is never in the limelight and seldom gets noticed, so they get discouraged over their gift status. That is actually what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 12. Now, you don't need to turn there. I believe I have it on the screen he was looking in Romans chapter 12 after all this great theology, and he was saying, listen, don't look at yourself higher than you ought to or lower, but just the way God has gifted you and created you. Because if you look at somebody else who's more gifted than you, then you're going to think, well, I want that person's gift, or I want that person's recognitions, or that person's ability to teach or that person's ability to do something that I don't have, but that's not how God designed it. See, God has actually designed it very intelligently, and it works as a unity when we follow God's ways. Now, look at Romans 12. It says this. It says, for 
through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. See, a person not discerning properly how the Lord has gifted him or fit him or her into the body can become actually troubled to the body because he or she begins to grumble and allow themselves to become discontent and jealous of those who have more visible gifts, like speaking gifts, than themselves. And so they fail to realize that every member is important no matter how hidden from view. In fact, the whole body is somewhat crippled when one member is not functioning. So Christians need to realize that they have been given a spiritual gift. That only they can actively use to edify the body. Now, sometimes we don't think like this, but if you look up at verse number 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look what it says there. Now, Christians, you need to be content in whatever abilities God has uniquely bestowed upon you because in verse number 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, it says, but one and the same Spirit works all things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. See, that's what God does. He's giving to you at conversion, when you became new, a spiritual gift. Everyone has at least one spiritual gift. Now, you may not know what it is today, but as a Christian, you should find out what it is, and you should discover what it is so you can actually use the gift in the body, because I need that gift. You need that gift. And so as we both use our gifts, we both can build the body up together. Now, I don't have the gift that you have. You don't have the gift that I have. I may have a measure of a gift more than you, and you may have a less measure of a gift, and maybe it may be the same gift, but God designs all that. You just leave all that stuff with the Lord, and the Lord takes care of all the rest of it. So there's still an inferiority complex that Paul is addressing, and if you notice in verse 16 of chapter 12, all right, you have the ear inferiority complex where it says in verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, is it, it is not for this reason any the less part of the body. So the ear thought, all right, what did the ear think? The ear thought it was left out because he was not an eye. Eyes are visible and colorful and can be made very glamorous. Ears, they're usually covered. They're filled with wax. They have a hairs grown out of it. Didn't really build ego. So therefore, I am not needed and not part of the body. That was the conclusion. See, the Corinthian church was caught up in the eye and hand gifts, that's the visible gifts, therefore neglecting the other gifts. So many Christians have 
never known the joy of ministry and of pleasing the Lord simply because they have not recognized their spiritual gifts. Or maybe, maybe a crippling has taken place because of wrong thinking about spiritual gifts. You don't hear it much today. You know, when, when actually, I'm quite surprised in the membership class when, when we get to the place of spiritual gifts, I, I say, how many people have know their spiritual gifts? Some people don't know what their spiritual gifts are. And that's all right in the beginning. But that's not all right five years into it. <laughs> ten years into it. You're, you've been a Christian ten years, you don't know your spiritual gifts? What? Come on, we need you, right? You have to go back and give them the gospel again, because I don't know. Uh, whether they understand that or they've been reading the Word of God. So in other words, Paul continues the analogy of the body to receive further counsel. We must look at verse 17. See, we cannot be individuals and stand alone, in other words. Being self-sufficient is Satan's philosophy, not God's. No individual part in the body is equal to the whole. Verse 17, if... The whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Actually, Paul's getting quite ridiculous here. He wants it to be. He wants them to think how absurd it is to me to think that either I'm an island alone and everything depends on me or that I am not useful at all. So here, the principle would be, he means here that no organism can survive where only one member is involved, no matter how prominent that member. Paul takes a prominent member of the body, like the eye, and a less, and a less prominent member, the ear, and concludes that the body is limited without the hearing and the nose for smelling and there should not be spiritual loners in the body. No child of God should underestimate his own importance as a member of the body of Christ. They need not to covet the prestige of another in God's sight because his operation is just as significant. So anything that we do for the Lord in the church is a significant thing. I just mentioned all that in this principle. So in God's design, all are significant and have a proper place in the body. Now, if that didn't become clear to, to the Corinthians and to us, then Paul mentions it in verse number 18 of chapter 12. Look what he says. He is saying here that no individual chooses themselves where they are placed in the body. It's God's choice. Look at verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. It's in other words that God has planned this. We have not determined this on our own. When we become a Christian, as a matter of fact, when we become Christians, we really don't know what our spiritual gift is. We don't. And it's not, your spiritual gift is not a talent that you had before you became a Christian. It is not something that you're good at before you became a Christian. When you become a Christian, you get a spiritual gift that is divinely given to you. 
for the use of building up the body. It's not for your own personal use. It's for the building up of the body to give glory to God, to give honor to God, all right, and to show that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. So God's planned this. We have not determined this on our own. God has placed, has appointed, has destined, has assigned you a place and arranged those parts in the body just as he sees fit. So God, by divine appointment, fit his body together so that there is a wisdom that lies behind the placement and the ability of each member that cannot be disputed because God is the one who's done it. A Christian cannot select his own spiritual gifts or determine his place in the body. We cannot question the wisdom of God. It was God's pleasure alone that determines who gets what and to what measure they get and how many they get. Everybody has one. Some people have way more than one. Obviously, the Apostle Paul had all of them. He was in, I mean, the apostles were very extremely gifted with all kinds of spiritual gifts. Why? They laid the foundation of the church. Right? That foundation has to be firm so we can build on it. So once the apostles died, then it's our turn now from the beginning until the Lord comes back is now to keep building, to keep building, to keep building, to keep building. And everyone is to be building. Everyone. So if there's no variety in the body, then there's no body body actually at all. This passage of Scripture where in 1 Corinthians 18 and 19, it says in verse number 19, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? See, the point here is that no one can exist if it is, it is only, consistent, only consists of one member. It's absurd to think a body with only one member. That would not be a body. You know what that would be? A blob. Right? God did not call us to be a blob. He called us to be a body. Right? If we did not have the different parts of our body, then we could not do and function and live and get along in this world. And there's there's two primary reasons why some Christians never become involved serving in the, the local body of believers. The first one is this. Some feel that they have no gifts or abilities, that are worthy, and so sit back and let others do the work. These are described in the verses I just mentioned. They are really missing a blessing if they're not doing anything. So some think, I don't come to church to do anything. I'm just a spectator. I'm fine sitting in the bleachers and watching everything. That's not how God designed it, though. Sorry. Others feel that they are so highly qualified that they don't really need the help of others to perform their ministry. Unfortunately, we're going to look at that part of it today and then part of it next week. But what I do want to stress in these two groups and any other groups that fit in there is that both of those groups are committing pride, the sin of pride. Because if you think too highly of yourself, that's pride. We all know that, right? We start looking down at people and say, I don't need you. I can handle it myself. Right? Well, that's not the body. 
But somebody who says, well, hey, I, I don't really have those gifts and, I, and, and, uh, and all those things, and they think too lowly of themselves where they conclude God can't use me, then you're saying, wait a minute, if God gave you a gift and you're saying that God can't use you, then you must be smarter than God because the Lord is the one who's done this, not you. So that's pride too. That's pride on the reverse side. And we don't often think that when we think lowly of ourselves, that's pride. That's pride before God. That's sin. And we need to repent of that. And probably that sin is committed more than the first one. Because we, we just evaluate ourselves and we think, and we, then we compare ourselves to other people that maybe have more education or are smarter and more gifted and more able to speak and, and know how to use the language better. And we just, we just compare ourselves to that and we, we, we get like this big. And then we decide, I can't do what they can do. Right! You can't. Why? Because that's how God designed it. So if the person who's visible all the time and has speaking gifts, if they're not prideful and they're humble, and those people that are all the behind-the-scene gifts, if they're not prideful, then you know what happens? There's a unity that comes about from the Spirit of God, and then the work of God really gets done. Because I can't do it. The elders can't do it. The deacons can't do it. No matter how many, how many you have, we can't do it all. We need every single person in the body to actually do the work of God. So the sin of pride, one says they don't need me, while the others say I don't need them. Others would spout I don't have a gift. Or I have a second-rate gift, still others would spout, it doesn't matter because I'm so unimportant, I'm invisible. All these are misinformed and self-centered, and if they remain with this attitude, they actually become an affront to God's love and wisdom. They think themselves wiser than God. They, they're not thinking that way, but that's exactly what happens. And they stifle the body. They stay away from the body. Some people don't come to church because they don't want to work. They don't want to. They don't want to go to church that makes people do things. Or I'm not making you do anything. But people who want to do things because they have a gift. Where can I be used? Where can I serve? Can I do this? Can I do that? Oh, I can do that task because that's that's below me. No, there's nothing below us in the church. I mean, we need the nursery workers. We need the people who do the work to put the music together to sing. We need the people who are doing the visitation, the organization, the internet, all the kinds of things that need to get done in the church so God's work could get done. A second foundational truth for the Christian for Christian fellowship is this, is that Scripture declares that all the members make up one body. In fact, what Paul does here in verse 20 to 26 is that he reverses the order from the last order. And he says, first of all, the members have a need of each other's, so must work interdependently and not independently. See, to to know that I need you, for you to think that you need me, that you need that person sitting next to you, you need that person sitting in front of you, you need that that believer that has these gifts that God's given them, we need each other, and so we're working interdependently interdependently with each other, not independently with each other. And that's what Paul is driving home to the church. He says in verse number 20, 
He says, but now there are many members, but one body. So it is the same point said in a, in a different way, that the body of Christ is composed of people with a wide variety of gifts and capabilities. A few gifts, a few gifts are showy, most are not. Yet all are needed for the body life to exist and continue as a unity. So now we have a, another problem in the church, and that there was the inferiority complex problem. Now you have the superiority complex problem. And that's, that's looked at in verse number 21, where it says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, I'm not really going to mention this morning what the gifts are. You can read in the Word of God what they are. And you could ask yourself, what gift do I have? So the passage, the passage I just mentioned show the considerable danger of underestimating one's importance. And now the caution focuses upon the danger of overestimating one's importance in the body. And here... The more visible gifts are considered because they often enjoy greater importance. Verse 21, it says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again to the head, head to the feet, I have no need of you. So the eye and the head refer to members in the body that are superior to the hand and the foot. Because the eyes function in the body in a more important or a pro prominent manner than the hands do and the head also function in a complex task within the body in all practicality it is the body's computer therefore has a more exalted place than the foot but what would the eye be without the hand it would be less than what it could be there would be no eye and hand coordination. Or what would the head be without the foot? It would not be able to transport itself from one place to another. In fact, both the eyes and the head's function would be greatly curtailed without the full function of the hand and the foot. So there is always a danger, always a danger. For any person stepping into the spotlight Anyone teaching, leading, or becoming visible before other people, the tendency is, if one is not careful, to begin to look down on abilities and gifts that do not gain as much human acknowledgement. I've seen it over and over again, actually, in the ministry, usually with the first-timer or the gifted, enabled. They know it. They know they're gifted, enabled. They're given some authority, and some of the people respond to their ability, and before you know it, they make themselves the center of attention. They develop an inflated view of, of their importance and begin to use their gift without love. It becomes about them. And because of their abilities and gifts, people do gravitate to them. That's why cults begin, right? Cults begin on personality on a, person, a person's ability to be able to use language to convince people of things otherwise they would not be convinced of, right? And they gain a following 
because of their personality. And it's all about that cult leader. That's what it's about. In the church, that should not be. See, they see themselves in an unbalanced way, and if not checked, admonished, and even rebuked, it will lead to infighting, schisms, cliques, and factions within the church body. That's why Paul told Timothy, when you are picking elders, not a new convert. Why? This is what he said, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. I'll tell you, one sin the devil knows how to use is pride. He's really good at it. Uh, he'll get you to either on one, the pride of looking down or the pride of thinking I'm, I'm too, I'm not gifted enough and, and God can't use me type of thinking. See, along with all giftedness, Paul also said to the Philippian church, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look at your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Wow, what is he saying there? He's saying it's not about you. God can remove you if he wants to. There's nobody who's more important than another person, no matter what gift you have. Because we're all part of the body. If you decide one day, I don't think I really need my hand, I think I'll just chop, chop it off. Well, you're going to have a serious problem, right? But see, that's exactly the absurdity that we bring sometimes into spiritual things and into the body. We need everything. So see, in other words, the bottom line is, and this is the bottom line, this morning at least, the bottom line is this, that whatever gifts... God has given you, and he has given you at least one, whether they are quiet and behind-the-scene gifts and abilities or they are more grand and visible. No one, no one has the privilege to act alone, but our duty before God is to cooperate with all the other gifted Christians in the body so that the whole body is edified and built up and grows healthy. See, the church is interdependent with one another. Verse 21, it says, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That is absolute absurdity. The superior organs need the inferior ones. The eye needs the hand, the hand needs the head, the head, the eye, the hand need the feet. We need the whole body. We don't chop ourselves apart because maybe we don't like something about one part of the body. Now, I'm going to pick up the rest of it next week. But I do want to say that we are to strengthen one another. And one way to strengthen one another in the church is to make sure that our spiritual gift remains active and in service to the church body. We don't really have the privilege to shelve ourselves, put our, our gift on the shelf. If we considered 
1 Corinthians 12, 12, the verse I started with, it says, even, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. The church is the visible body of Christ on earth. The local church are hands to do his work, feet to run upon his errands, a voice to speak for him. The body analogy reminds us that certain things need to exist within a healthy body. A body is healthy and efficient only when each part is functioning consistently and in the proper way. Also, that the parts of the body do not act as if they are jealous of each other or covet each other's function or remain ignorant of what they are to do. The body works as a unity and not in competition with one another. So all spiritual gifts that are given to God's church, the body of Christ, have a common origin and function within one common organism, the body of Christ. So when the Apostle Paul speaks about these spiritual gifts, he does so always with the analogy of the body Wherever he speaks about it, whether it's Romans, Corinthians, or other places, he's always using the analogy of the body because you know why? We're walking around in a body all day long, right? And when our body doesn't work right, what happens? When we slam our finger in the door, what happens to our body? Does the rest of our body just go along normally? No, our whole body goes, ah! You know, everything focuses on that one thing that happened. That's exactly what Paul is getting at. He's getting at that in the body. So, just thinking of that, you can read the passage of Scripture yourself. What can I do to serve? See, the question is, where are you using your spiritual gift to serve the church body? If you know what your gift is, you should be using it. If you don't know what it is yet, you need to find out what it is. All right? And you, if you do know what it is, don't put it on a shelf because we need it. I need it. So what can I do to serve? All right, that, that has to be one of the first questions. That has to do with gift and talents. The, the theological concept of spiritual gifts from, comes really from several Greek words, but primary Charisma, which really means the endowment of God's grace, something given out of grace and not a debt for the spiritual working of God in the body of Christ. So then we might define spiritual gifts as an ability given to an individual believer by God in order that the believer might serve God in some particular way and build up the body of Christ. So you have to ask yourself, what spiritual gift do I have? You can check Romans 12, 1 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12 that we just mentioned. It's listed there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 to 11. All mentioned list of spiritual growth or, or spiritual gifts. Now, some of those gifts, I believe, have passed off the scene. And they were only given to the apostles to lay the foundation of the church. But there are about 11 permanent gifts uh, that God's given to the church that are still operative today. Now, a second thing would be there are some observations that we can glean about spiritual gifts 
that each believer has a spiritual gift and possibly more than one. Verse 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Also, spiritual gifts are received at the moment of conversion. Although all gifts are needed in the church, some are more important than others, at least in God's eyes, but not more important as far as the function of the body. Also, there, we are to recognize the degrees of giftedness. There are levels of, gift, of giftedness. Some have more giftedness than others. Some gifts were permanently given, whereas others apparently were temporary, being important for the beginning years of the church, as I just mentioned. Also, the believer, the believer controls the use of his or her gift and is therefore the one responsible for its use or non-use. Like natural abilities, spiritual gifts can be developed and matured. We mature in our spiritual gifts. And many times, the gift that we start with, God either builds on that gift or gives us more gifts, and we find them out as we serve the Lord. Spiritual gifts also can be used with wrong motives, without love for others. Spiritual gifts can, uh, are, are not abilities to work with some particular age group or some particular place of service. Some say there are eight or nine permanent gifts. Others say there are 11 or 12 permanent gifts, like pastor-teacher, teaching, evangelism, exhortation, helps, ministering, mercy, administration, that of government and leading and ruling. And then there's the gift of faith and giving and knowledge and wisdom and discernment. So there's many gifts that God displays in the Word of God. And you have one of them if you are a believer. Experimentation, of course, is important. Uh, In other words, give an attempt to serve in different areas of the church body uh, and don't give it just a brief attempt. Give it some time, a prolonged effort over a period of time, such as evangelism or serving or helping in a helping role in some way in the church. We always need people to do things. Uh, so ministries don't go by the wayside. So the kids can be ministered to, so the work in the church can be done, and you can do it. And then we have to ask the second question, is that where can I serve? That has to do with really desire, too. God gives you a desire to serve in a certain area. Uh, delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So using your timelines and to dis- discover your desires, w- what passion has the Lord given you since you've become a believer? And, and those passions could be varied. It could be a passion to do evangelism in your family or to do evangelism in another part of the world or to a certain group of people, but it's going to be in the area of a spiritual gift that drives my passion, that drives my desire to do something for God on this side of eternity. And then what you need to do after that is experiment with it, give an attempt uh, to actually do it. And then so most desires are, revolve around people and information and things, and that would bring me to a third thing that we would ask, at what level can I serve? Depends on how long you've been saved and how long you've grown in the Lord, because there's several phases. We go from the seeker phase, where the Bible in 1 John talks about little children and babies, right? They're drinking milk. They're just enjoying, you know, their new salvation. 
And then, of course, there's a second phase, and that's really, it could be the young man phase where they're new believers, young believers. They're, they're taking the word of God. They're learning how to fight Satan with it. They're battling with their own sin, and they're putting it to death, and they're enjoying just learning truth and doctrine and what the church is about and relationships and all those kind of things. And they're going through a spiritual maturity phase. And then there's the mature believer, that's the spiritual father, who just learns to live by faith and knows what he's about, knows where his, what his gifts are, the measure of his gifts or her gifts, and then just uses it for the body. Not swayed too much by what's going on in the world or by what's going on in their circumstances. Pretty much steady, faithful. They're just going to take the next step, breathe the next breath, and do what God wants them to do. They're not looking for big things. They're looking for heaven. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. And that's not on this side of eternity. That's on the next. So there may be things that we have to go through, but I want to serve. That's the underlying desire the Spirit of God gives me. I want to do something. And then, of course, when will you serve? I heard that said that the greatest of the greatest ability is availability. If you're never available, then how can you serve? Now you're available to do everything you want to do, but how come you're not available to do what God wants you to do? Right? I know that we're knocked from pillar to post in our culture with jobs and schedules and all kinds of crazy things. I mean, people are working when they're not in the office. They're behind their computer. They're working. They're emailing. They're texting. They're evaluating. They're analyzing. They're doing all this kind of stuff. So it doesn't really matter. But in that vicious cycle of work, there's got to be some availability. Now, there's either zero to one hours per week. That's light. There's two to five hours per week. That's moderate. There's... 69 hours per week, that's strong, and there's 10 or more hours a week, and that's, that's major. We need all that availability, all of it. If we're going to get the work done, if we're going to reach New Jersey, if we're going to keep the church strong uh, and continue to teach the Word of God, we need all the availability from everybody. So where do you begin? Where do you begin? Well, I don't want to answer to that. Start somewhere. Start working somewhere. Why is that? Because real Christians desire true fellowship. And true fellowship includes working with one another for the work of Christ. I cannot, you cannot, enjoy fellowship if we're not using our spiritual gifts to build up Christ's body. I didn't come up with it. God designed this. And believe me, when you get in there and get your hands dirty and start doing something from the Lord, it's like you're transported to heaven. God uses you, and you feel fulfilled. You feel used by God. Your joy increases. Your peace increases. Your desire to want to do more for the Lord increases. And you learn how to even deal with your difficulties and problems in a more efficient manner because 
God becomes first. His work becomes first. And everything in the world seems to get minimized and God's work gets pushed up to a higher degree. That's what happens uh, to Christians. And so I, I just pray that you would, um, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, then you want to sign up for the membership class because we do have a spiritual gift evaluation form there uh, where we sit down or you just sit down and, and you answer about 109, 120 questions. And it really the questions are about who you are, what you desire since you've become a believer. What are some of the things you possibly would like to do? And then by the end of the, it's not a, a full proof method, but it's one step to be able to evaluate where you are and what you're going to do, right? And so everybody working. So when we need nursery workers or we need things for the children program, I should never, and the email goes out and nobody responds to it. That should never happen, right? We should have people in line to do things. People knocking over people to do things. Amen? Oh, man, that email was not good. That was more like an oh me. Amen? No, really, we need to really think about this more seriously than ever because it's in the Word of God and we need to be used. You, we need you. I need you. You need me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you this morning, Lord. Lord, your Word is clear. And Lord, we, I must admit we're not always obedient to it. But I pray, Lord, that would change today for some of us. That you would... Allow us to sit down with the Word of God, look at those passages of scriptures that describe spiritual gifts. And I pray, Lord, that we would evaluate ourselves based on what they are and, Lord, the desires you've given us since we become believers. And I pray, Lord, that you would commit us to a place of using those gifts within the body for the very purpose of building up the body. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, we would not think that we're so important that if uh, that we become prideful and we wouldn't think that we're so lowly that we can't be used. But I just pray, Lord, that we would just see, wow, God's allowed me to do this. And Lord, whatever measure or level you, you've given of that gift, I pray, Lord, we would just be thankful to be able to be used in, in this lifetime to serve you in this way and to know that we can send up our treasure ahead of us to heaven by the use of our spiritual gifts in the body. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless us, that we would have workers and laborers for the field, for the harvest that's ready to be picked during these days, these last days we live in. It. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be used by you. Change our heart today, Lord. Move our will. And Lord, give us a clear sight to our own selves so we can... Find out who we are, how you gifted us, and then where can we be used? And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.